When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Always Be Comedy podcast. It's episode 12. We are joined by one of the greatest comedians to ever hold a microphone, uh, Nish Kumar, a huge favourite Always Be Comedy, has been for many a year. Nish is another one of those acts where... I, I, hang on, I'm, I'm, I'm in danger of making it all about Always Be Comedy, but I, I'm just sort of seeing it through the ABC lens. When we first saw him, he was what you would call one to watch, rising star. And then what we've seen over the years is him just become gig by gig, as I say, a, a true modern great of stand-up. We're in awe of him. He's absolutely relentless. He's incredible. If you've never seen him, he was what he's what I would call a front foot comedian. And he's a bit like, you know the film Captain Phillips? When I was a kid, right, a thriller, a movie thriller would have intense bits and quiet bits and intense bits. It would be up and down like a roller coaster. And then I saw Captain Phillips and it's just like a hundred miles an hour for the full movie. And Nish, hang on, that doesn't sound like a favorable comparison, <laughs> but Nish, Nish is basically relentlessly brilliant from the, from the first minute to the last. He, there's just, it just, the excellence never drops. And he, he is, he's like no one I've ever seen before. I cannot say enough great things. He's quite literally, one of my favorite comedians of all time i'm i'm my jaw is on the floor i don't know how he does it i think he's extraordinary so we'll just get that out of the way before we get before we get to niche i'm quite the fan let's put it that way uh so it was it was a real honor to have niche on the podcast now if you're new to the podcast the always be comedy podcast is where we i've got to say pure chat up top chat 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 up top and then the nitty-gritty a comedian guest talks us through, they curate what would be their idea of a fantasy comedy gig. In time, we will branch out to non-comedians, but for now, it's comedians talking comedy. And the niche one is very special because, my God, this dude did the homework. Uh, also, key thing to flag, this was done across two sittings. So we did part one, then someone had to go collect their children from school i don't want to say who it was because it was me and then part two we did the next day uh and so tim to his eternal credit has done i think george martin would applaud the production job that tim has done on this podcast so i would say huge thanks to tim for making the magic happen huge thanks for nish uh for doing it across two days when he is quite literally the hardest working man in show business. Tim, Nish Kumar, you like me are quite the fan. Yes, big fan. I think Nish is brilliant. Nish's one of those people who I was admiring from afar. I was going to see his Edinburgh shows. I was going to see him on tour, but I hadn't really worked for him. Um, but recently, good Lord, he's been doing always, he's done always be comedy as much as we have, I feel like. 
And that has been, and that has been in across twelve years of ABC. That has been one of the absolute high points of ABC is uh, having more niche in our lives. Also, the very, I mean, no comedian really phones it in, but niche, whatever the opposite of phoning it in is, is is Nish Kumar. It's a bit, it's a bit like you know when you go see Bruce Springsteen, you know, oh God, there's a real reference for the kids. But when when you go see, I've seen I've seen Springsteen a lot down the years. When you go see him, you know he's gonna give it his all. And Kumar, Kumar makes Bruce Springsteen look like Bruce Springsteen isn't really trying. That's that's how good he is. Um, also, keep your ears peeled. You know we love a cheeky scoop on the uh, Always Be Comedy podcast. Kumar not afraid to drop a scoop. So strap in for a bit of that. Some lovely correspondence this week. Tim Lewis, one of his finest moments, off the cuff suggested you guys writing in to tell us about times where you bumped into a comedian or someone else and it it happens to be a, a a lovely a beautiful beautiful thing we did also sort of in a bit of a snide way also <laughs> suggest if you send in times that weren't so great and then we'd have to use our discretion right because you know we we, we don't end up in court or anything the ones you sent in were absolutely lovely um lisa Love the Andy Hamilton episode. I've got to say, I think the Andy Hamilton episode is, I mean, it's not really for me to say, is it? <laughs> well, no, I suppose it is because because it's all about Andy. Andy's just so uh, fascinating and funny and what, you know, what, what a great guy. Uh, a couple of, this is, now this is Lisa. A couple of years ago, I was in Birmingham with my friend and just as we turned to go to the custard factory, I spotted a friend of the night, she didn't write that bit, Joe Lysett. I don't know why, but I just blurted out Joe. Now, Lisa, you're not alone here. Uh, a friend of mine, when Rio Ferdinand played for Leeds United, Rio Ferdinand walked out of a nightclub and a friend of mine went, Oh, Rio! And he thought it was, <laughs> he thought it was a friend of his. Because the brain, I think your brain goes, you know that person, without actually explaining that you don't know them, but you you know. And apparently Rio was very charming and it was all fine, but it was, it was as Rio turned around, looked at him as if to say, what? Where my friend's brain went, oh no, you don't. It's real for them. Um, I don't know why, but I just blurted out Joe. I think, oh no, I've done it myself. I've done it myself. When I was a sports writer, oh God, should have started with this. Sorry for my friend in Rio. Uh, when I was a sports writer, I was at Wembley and Graham Taylor, former England manager, a very avuncular figure. We were in the gentleman's loo in the media section and I've finished washing and I'm washing my hands and I'm possibly drying them. The door opens. Graham Taylor walks in, and again, my brain goes, you know, this guy. And I went, hey, you're all right. How are you doing? Now, Graham Taylor is a lovely guy. It's Graham Taylor, the, the sweetest smile you've ever seen in your life. He just goes, hey, you're all right. How are you? Oh, God. Oh, I love that. What a lovely man. And then it's as I'm walking out, and you're like, oh, God, you fool. Uh, but it, maybe it happens to... Maybe it happens to dudes more than we imagine. I don't know why, but I just blurted out, Joe, Lisa, I'm with you. Um, just in case it was someone who looked like him. No, Lisa, you were right. Uh, when he looked at me, I babbled. I was sorry to disturb him. He was eating a sausage roll. Great intel. Uh, but I'm a fan and I would kick myself if I didn't say hello. Lisa, I had the exact same experience with Russ Abbott. You, you would have to live. You would have to live with what could have been. Uh, he was so, so lovely and we had a really good chat oh this is nice the friend didn't know who joe was and to be fair lisa says she must live under a rock 
uh, but the, the, her mate was chatting away with Joe Lysett like an old friend. I think he would have talked to us for longer, but we, but, but we, we felt like we were taking up his time. Uh, asked for a photo, left into it. Right, I would say, Lisa, I, I think Tim will back me up here. Perfect interaction. The dream interaction. Dream interaction. Quick, warm. He knows that you're on side. All positive. That I think I would mark that. <laughs> I would mark that. Ten out of ten. ten out I did of feel ten. guilty for approaching him, Lisa. You 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 were clearly raised the right way. Ah, uh, while he was eating. Yes, this is this was a caveat. This was... <laughs> Lisa, ten out of ten. Yeah, I did flag as a caveat that if someone's eating, I think what I meant was more if someone's like in a restaurant with the family. I think solo sausage roll. I think that's. <laughs> I think that's all right. If life has taught me anything, solo sausage roll, absolutely fine. Uh, it was a lovely experience. Warm regards to you both, Lisa. God bless you. And then Lisa collared me at a recording of Celebability with lovely Ian Sterling, who is also a lovely person. Right, Lisa, top tier. Great correspondence. Uh, we, we got another beauty. Now, this isn't a comedian, but it's too good to not read out. Ian wrote in, he once met Dirk Benedict. Now, if you are, I would say over 40, there's a strong chance you have such warm feelings towards Dirk Benedict because he was face or face man uh, from the A-team, which was ultimately, unquestionably, my favorite show at that age. Uh, you met, he met Dirk Benedict while he was playing Columbo now this this blew my mind. I didn't know that Dirk Benedict played Columbo. It was a stage production of Columbo. I think Dirk Benedict would be a wonderful Columbo, an incredibly Peter Falk was a fine looking man. Dirk Benedict is like one of the most beautiful human beings. I sound like uh, Brendan Rogers. Uh, one of the, he's, he's gorgeous. He's 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 a, he's a he's a head turner. That's why he played Face Man. So I didn't know that. So that was great intel. And what happened was that Ian was wearing a t shirt that just happened to have uh, a tourist attraction from Dirk Benedict's hometown. As I say this out loud, did you just happen to be wearing it or was this a genius ploy to get Dirk Benedict's attention? We, we will never know. Let's say it was a happy accident. Uh, and then he got a picture with Dirk. Right, again, played like a boss. Well played. God, I wish I'd, wish I'd had a t-shirt when I met Russ Abbott. Poor Russ. Tim, imagine if we can get Russ Abbott on the podcast. I think it's what we're aimed for. That's the gold ticket. I'll tell you what, Tim, who would be your dream get that's not a, a, a comedian or comedy adjacent person? I'm not sure he's going to have many answers for us, but I'd love Thierry Henry on the show. Thierry Henry. Do you reckon Thierry Henry's a comedy fan? Um, <laughs> well. Oh, I'm mate. Sure. Yes, he is. I warmed up a show Thierry Henry was on. It was uh, Jamie Redknapp chat show where Tom Davis was a permanent uh, co-host. Brilliant. I'll tell you Thierry Henry loves. Does he? He loves Tom, He loves big Tom D. I love that so much. What I loved about big Tom Davis is because Tom Davis and Nick Helmers talked about this to, to us. Tom Davis talks to the runner the same way that he talks to the director. The same. The, Tom Davis again raised the right way and that re, Henry really noticed that. And I think Tom Tom tells the story well. Thierry Henry says something like, "You are so uh, ordinary." 
<laughs> Tim, any other business? No other business, really. Just thank you for all your reviews, all your subscriptions, uh, all, all the plugs for the podcasts. Uh, we notice it and we really appreciate it. Yeah, we are very, very grateful. Um, if you think that we are the sort of uh, neurotic worry boys who who, go, who log on to check that people are still rating and reviewing, you are you know for well that that's what we're like. You know that we do that, and so we are grateful that that number keeps going up. Drop a five star review, rate, review, subscribe, all that malarkey. Uh, it means the world. Thank you very much. We, now we do have some shows coming up. We every summer. We do a summer season of uh, work in progress shows, new material shows, preview shows, and it gets underway as you're listening to this pretty much now. So we've got Jacob Hawley on Tuesday, the 6th of June. He's not doing a preview. He's actually doing the final leg of his UK tour bump. He's doing that at the Tommy Field in Kennington. If you would like to come to that, um because he might he might even really record it as a special so we're saying to you uh podcast people i don't know why i've suddenly i've suddenly gone i've really dropped the volume but uh that's fine i've turned into I've, another reference for the kids i've turned into whispering bob harris uh if you use the code stew s-t-u uh that is in honor of a, a, a friend of mine called stew he doesn't i nearly cracked a terrible joke and i caught myself and i'm Let's just all be grateful that I caught myself. Use the code STEW and you can get tickets for just £6. That's to you podcast guys. STEW, S-T-U. £6 tickets for Jacob Hawley Tour Show, Tuesday the 6th of June. Uh, and then coming up with previews and works in progress and the like, there are the likes of Rosie Holt, Matt Ford, Ian Sterling, Sophie Duca, uh, and many, many more. Mark Simmons. Rose Matafaya, that sold out. Josh Pugh, Bridget Christie, that sold out. Kiri Pritchard-McLean, Rose Johnson, uh, and many, many more. Daniel Fox, what a talent he is. Uh, all to be found, sorry, I've really I've really gone full QVC, uh, but all to be found, alwaysbecomedy.com. Uh, and someone who certainly helped make the night, what it is, is Nish Kumar. Nish, uh, Tim, anything else we can add about Nish? Uh, well... He's doing our podcast, but he's just launched his own podcast. Pod Save America. No. <laughs> no, but you're actually, you know what? You're right to say that because it is part of the Pod Save America family, but it's called Pod Save the UK. And I'm so glad, Tim, that you once again were Johnny on the spot there. So Pod Save the UK, I'm already on board and that podcast has hit the ground running and it is, it's, it's informative. It's very funny. It's Nish Kumar and a journalist friend of his, Coco Khan, and the two of them are wonderful. Uh, Pod Save the UK is available everywhere you get podcasts. And because they're covering current affairs and politics, obviously the subject matter is, is, often, is often heavy and grim and, and uh, infuriating and will make you angry. But because Nish and Coca are, are, are so skilled, my gosh, you'll have a great laugh along the way. Pod Save the UK gets the Always Be Comedy double thumbs up seal of approval. Uh, and so without further ado, we welcome 
one of the absolute greats, Nish Kumar. Uh, Nish, straight off the bat, the new podcast, uh, Pod Save the UK. Please talk us through it. Oh well, it's an it's a it's an adaptation of a uh, an, an existing American show. So I have reverse Steve Carell'd, um, <laughs> and it's a um, yeah, it's a Pod Save America started uh, in two thousand and sixteen. Um, and has been around there for a long time and is run by uh, three guys, uh, John Lovett, uh, Tommy Vitor and John Favreau, who were basically the kind of deputy communications team in the White House. And so they they went kind of straight from the White House into podcasting about American news. And so they ended up, but it ended up taking off and... um, they kind of built a podcast network out from there. So this is a British sister show to that. Now, I, I know that you would be sick of being told this sort of thing, but the, <laughs> the t- you know what I'm going to say? The timing of the podcast is perfect, yet heartbreakingly, you, we could have said that for the past 12 or 13 years. One, 100%. One, yeah, 100%. It has been nonstop news for about a decade now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's nonstop news uh, for about a decade, and I think like eventually, one of the things we probably need to coach ourselves out of is only paying attention to the news when everything is going wrong. And I include all of us in that. I think it's uh, I think we sort of um, when things feel a bit calmer, that's probably when the scrutiny most scrutiny needs to be applied because that's when all the problems are starting and traps are being laid that will then explode in our faces over the course of the next kind of decade and a half. So my relationship with the news is if I'm writing on a topical show, I will just try to consume as much as as is humanly possible. If I'm on the tube, people over my shoulder will think he's looking at some questionable websites. It's for research, I promise. Now, with what new stories are you covering with that, Gilly? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going through the paywall just to explain. what, what about yourself? Do you, do you just read anything and everything? Yeah, I mean, I try and stay uh, on top of stuff. I'm sort of professionally obliged to stay on top of stuff and kind of have been for a few years. Because even when you're doing, um, you know, even when you're doing six weeks of the MASH report or something, you you do have to sort of pay attention to the news in between those six weeks. Because otherwise, week one is very stressful. Trying to, try to bring yourself back up to speed uh, is very stressful. I mean, I think I'm I'm sort of interested in the news in general, so I'm happy to stay on. To, I, I, I stay on top of it uh, out of my own personal interest. But yeah, I am sort of aware that I've been professionally obliged to be vaguely across UK news for probably about... I mean, maybe since for, for like seven years now. Like I've I, I've done maybe maybe eight years. I've I've had some jobs presenting new stuff either on the radio or on the television since about two thousand and fifteen. Now that sounds like an absolute nerdlinger. I mean, my poor wife gets this every morning. But the new the news, all right, as grim as much of it is, it is absolutely fascinating and sort of knocks any boxer into a into a cocked hat. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, I think I think many of us have this almost voracious thirst for it because 
uh, and even on a glo- you know on a global scale, not just what's going on over here. It's just it is endless, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it's grimly fascinating. Yes. It's just yeah. watching. It's just watching a slow moving car wreck that we're like in the back seat of. It's like well, it's like the, it's like a like one of those like long yellow American school buses has crashed, and we're at the back seat of it, and you're just like, oh, this is interesting to watch, but it is this is this this is going to have real consequences for me pretty soon. Uh, now, now this pod of yours, it, it has hit the ground running, hasn't it? I know, I know. I think it's only maybe three or four episodes old at the time of recording. Yeah, at the time of recording, there's three uh, full episodes and a kind of bonus episode introducing us. Uh, to the American uh, founders of the show, which was really nice, and it was a really that was a really lovely conversation. But yeah, so we're we're ju- we're just getting started. Yeah, yeah, you are right. You are just getting started. This I'm saying this is a compliment. Even just three episodes in, I feel that pod has been you know like, you know, like a sitcom can take it took it, it took four seasons yeah, for this yeah, show yeah, to yeah, get yeah, going. Yeah. Whereas this one. You and Coco, the the groove is there from the off, isn't it? Oh, that's good. I'm pleased you said that. Yeah, it's um, I, I so I presented with Coco Khan, who's my friend and a journalist, and I've known her for a long time, and so the 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 hope was that we would be able to convert our personal dynamic into a, a professional dynamic, and and then we did also, you know, we've there's a massive team of. Uh, producers that work on the show and so there's a lot of prep that goes into it on a week-to-week basis um but yeah i'm pleased that everything seems to be i'm pleased that it seems to be coming across the what we're intending the show to be i say this is a uh someone who's listened to i think every episode of the news agents i would say if you love the news sorry it's like i'm doing your pr but if you love the news agents this is a great accompaniment this is like the news agents with jokes, with with laughs, you and Coco have got your own shorthand. Um, this is this has been a very easy addition to the Gill podcast stable. Oh, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's that's all. I'm, as a big podcast listener myself, I'm just my my big ambition was just to be added to people's like weekly. Oh shit! Hold on, our front door's gone. Sorry, Gilly. Two seconds. Oh, no, you're all right. Thank you. Sorry, Gilly. That was uh, 100 my fault because. Uh, Amy couldn't get in the house because I'd left the keys in the door. Uh, Nish, I, I couldn't relate to anything more. I <laughs> fell asleep in the house the other day and my wife had to climb over a wall because she knew that the back door was open. <laughs> Jesus Christ. My poor wife, she said, have you wondered why there are cushions strategically placed <laughs> uh, by the wall? Because I had to throw them over in order to safely land on them. <laughs> <laughs> Poor woman. Why are you oh, with me? Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, uh, we, were, we were talking Pod Save the UK, but then, but then also one thing I wanted to say was uh, with, with the online shows, you were. Tim and I always have like this league table in our head of favourite comedians and, and whatnot. It's like a never ending group of death. Yeah. I would say Nish Kumar has been the, I don't want to say Manchester City. Let's say Guardiola era Barcelona. Let's keep it pure. <laughs> Actually, even that's not aging well. Let's go for Arrigo Sarchi era AC Milan. That's <laughs> inarguable. Right. Okay. Um, but then also just to cement the legacy uh, with those lockdown shows, you proved uh, such a mensch. You know, you, you did some of the food bank gigs. You, did, you know, there the, were the regular gigs. You, you were one of the guys that just seemed to 
take to it like a, a duck to water. As Al Murray says, online shows and real life shows are apples and oranges. It's hard to compare them. But you, you, you just had it. How, how come? Because I basically had to learn how to do it immediately because the um, first week of lockdown was the first episode of the MASH report. Literally the first week. So the, the last BBC series of the MASH report was due to start in April 2020. And so just before the entire lockdown happened, uh, somebody came to my house, a cameraman came to my house, disinfected camera equipment in front of my house. It looked like I was investing in camera equipment to become a self-made pornographer. Like it really <laughs> did. Like it really did. You know, a guy in like full sort of... Um, you know, like full PPE, like w rocked up. And it was sort of, it was, it was, it was just before the lockdown when it became clear that like, we weren't going to be able to do anything in a studio, but it still wasn't quite, I'm trying to remember if the timeline is right, but definitely it was so early that people were not used to just seeing people walking around in masks and gloves and shit. Oh. And, and this guy was like, disinfecting camera equipment outside my house and then in the room that I'm recording now in my study he put like he put a camera up and then we sort of quickly bust like a we found like an old school desk that uh, my partner Amy had brought from her parents house and like shoved a I had to buy a computer and stuff because all my stuff wasn't like I had like a normal technical setup that most people have but it could not function as a <laughs> as a television as a remote television studio, so we had to kind of put all of that together very quickly. But it also meant that I had to get very used to just speaking down the barrel of the camera in an empty room with no one with me. Um, and so I actually did. I think Excess Malarkey, the gig in Manchester, did an online gig very early, and I said yes immediately because I knew that I was going to have to get used to just speaking into the void. And and so then when the mash started, I was we'd record it in pieces over the course of uh, a Wednesday and then it would kind of get edited remotely in air on a Thursday night. And so I do correspondence pieces on Zoom and then the final piece of it would be me doing all of the monologues that are just all of the bits of the show that are just me down the barrel of a camera for like two hours because also we couldn't get we couldn't get the auto cue working properly so we it, I, it kind of had to be a mixture of me sort of reading it off the computer and me sort of learning it off my heart and but it, yeah and so but i just got very used to speaking to nothing I, arguably there are some people and these would not be kind people who would argue that i'd been completely used to speaking to no reaction for 10 years of comedy now, speaking as your friend and Nish Kumar fan, you you stop that talk, my friend. <laughs> you you stop that talk. Now, um, but yeah, but it was just that weird thing because people were obviously like, "This is obviously weird," and I was like, "I don't know. I do it every week. <laughs> I have to do it. Every, I have to do it every week for hours." So, I think of all of the. I think anybody that did uh, our whole group of people that did the Mash Report were uniquely well set up to do Zoom gigs because we had to get used to it immediately. You know, like it was like episode one, 
was like the first or second week of lockdown. And so I think that's why when people started asking me to do Zoom stand-up gigs, I was like, yeah, well, I may as well. I had everything set up properly. So I just was like, yeah, I got no problem doing it. Did, did MASH run smoothly with those shows? The reason why I ask, and I know of more than one show where because the tech wasn't ready, um, there was one show where they were asking, it was a chat show, they had, to, they had to ask a guest a question, then they had to all sit in silence because it was taking about 20 seconds for the sound to get to the guest. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, was, was MASH okay in that regard? Uh, uh, MASH was okay because... Um for two reasons one our producer had no confidence in boris johnson and and i guess which again i guess is like if you've been doing topical comedy over the last few years over the last best part of a decade you have no faith in boris johnson because whatever job he's done he's not engendered confidence and so when he gave that press conference where he said i shook hands with everybody it's going to be absolutely fine my producer was like we need to explore remote options <laughs> And like he, he, they, they had really worked out a system because they thought, well, if it doesn't, if there isn't a lockdown, if nothing happens, then we'll just be in the studio. We've already prepped for that. We know what we're doing. But in the event that they are fucked, they came up with three different scenarios. So there was a scenario where there was obviously scenario A, nothing happens and we just film the series as normal. There was scenario B where we have to film it in an empty studio with no audience. And then there was scenario C, which was the worst case scenario, which is we have to work out a way that everybody could do this from their houses. The other reason MASH was fine was because there, were lo there, was, a, there was a bit of ad-libbing on that show, especially with uh, me and Rachel Paris. There was a yep. lot of ad-libbing. Paris would improvise a lot. But there there was always a script and so one of the things that helped was that even if there was a delay you were doing scripted lines and they can tr and they can trim the edits down when it's just a two-way conversation between me and one other person it's way easier to edit around um and so any technical problems they were able to kind of uh, they were able to kind of bust around and then the rest of the show is just me talking into a camera and um, now you mentioned mr johnson there I don't. I'm not. I don't want to burn any gear or anything like that. The the stuff you've been doing recently, absolutely goes without saying. Absolutely phenomenal. You are clearly enjoying it a a, a great deal. This is this I, this is these aren't your words. These are my words. This is Kumar best level stuff. You, you you're you're absolutely in the groove at the moment, Nish. Well, that's nice to hear. I have no. It's in. I'm just working in a slightly different way at the moment because I have no sort of plans to tour a stand-up show. So I'm purely doing it for my own amusement. And uh, and so I needed some new material. I need some new material for the summer festival gigs that I do solely so that I can A, hang out with my friends and B, go to Glastonbury. Those are like, that's the only two things that I'm interested in. Um, and um, and I'm doing Blue Dot this year, which I've never done, but the li music lineup is amazing. So mm -hmm. I just needed half an hour, but it doesn't need to work in a year's time. The, pr the problem with writing stand-up, especially if it's politically engaged, uh, has been trying to maintain the topicality. And sometimes when a, you, you got a routine or a joke that was about something very specific, you just thought, oh, God, I hope that that story still feels relevant you know, by the time I'm touring the show. So at the moment, I if it looks like I'm having fun, it probably is because I'm having fun because I've got no specific agenda with this. I just want each individual gig to go well. 
I've got to say, we uh, we we had a drink after an Oisby comedy a few weeks ago. You come on, Lanjani, Rose Matafayo. Mm. Um, that inspired Tim and myself. We now try to go for a drink after Always Be Comedy because it, it's we're all friends. But if you're yeah. not careful, if you're not, I'm telling you something you already know it because you do it, I think. But you're, you're friends with these people. But yet, if you don't socialize, you're not you're not getting to know that person as, as well as well as you should. So what I want to say, I suppose, in a roundabout way is thank you because that's be- that has now become the norm for Tim and myself. Yeah, I think it's I, I think you have to strike a balance with it because certainly in the early years of doing stand up, you think, oh, well, I should try and have a drink with these people. And then you actually become quite f- good friends with them. And then you start going for drinks four nights a week and then you start <laughs> feeling terrible. So then you cut, but then, and then sometimes I think we sort of overcorrect the other way. The, the reason we ended up going out that night is that Kamal is literally in town doing gigs and he's purely doing it as a social activity. <laughs> so he's like, his primary interest is like, is hanging out. And sometimes when somebody comes in, Sometimes when somebody comes in from uh, outside the UK or uh, outside of, um, you know, even sometimes when it's like a bunch of people getting together who don't live, don't all live in the same city, it's really fun. Like almost whenever David O'Doherty is in town and doing a gig, we end up all hanging out in some form. And it, it is nice. I think the thing with the, you know, and like Kamal and Emily, his wife, are just in town for a little bit of time. So when he does gigs, she comes and we try and go for a drink afterwards. And it's really nice. I think the, the initial impulse when you start comedy is to try and have a drink as much as possible. Then you start going, well, I'll be dead within a year. So then you correct yourself. But then I think sometimes you can overcorrect and you can kind of kill the social aspect of it. Which is a which is sort of a shame because we're very lucky to work a lot with people that we really like, and we're very lucky to like be friends with a lot of our colleagues, and so you don't want to completely lose the kind of social element of it. It's about finding a balance between you know living in supreme isolation and going sort of full George Best. Absolutely, yes. Now, um, I don't think anyone will mind me sharing this story, but Nish, very excitingly, twice brought Kamal Nanjiani down to always be comedy, and Tim and myself, as a couple of comedy anoraks, even uh, my my butterflies in my stomach are jangling at the memory, right? It meant <laughs> a great deal. Now, at the Tommy Field, they are used to serving pints of lager, glasses of wine, and pretty much nothing else yeah and so we tim and myself will always ask an act what we like to drink it's usually a water uh and come on and johnny i cannot say enough amazing things about this guy an absolute sweetheart and i was so desperate for him to like me that when he came down i either wore a marvel or star wars t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> that may as well have said please like me so <laughs> He was great, but uh, I said to Kamal, what can I get, what drink would you like? And he said, he said, a Negroni cocktail. And I went to the the woman behind the bar, I won't say her name, but an absolute diamond, great dude. And I said, could I get a drink from the X? And she went, of course you can, love, what is it? And I said, a Negroni cocktail. And without blinking, she said, you are fucking joking. It, it truly... It truly is like there's so many pubs in. I I I mean I want to say I think it is specifically 
it feels like an English issue, but maybe it is a more broadly a UK issue. There are so many pubs, if you ask for like a basic cocktail, they, it's like Moe's in The Simpsons. Like they literally, there's a scene where someone asks Moe for a cocktail and he has to dust off a cocktail menu. And then I believe the line is gin and tonic to those two even go together. Well, I went to the loo and I, you know, while she was making the drink and I came back and I think she was reading the, fe- yeah. the very book that, that Mo looks at. It was so funny because Rose was like, oh, I'll have a Negroni as well. And then the two of them drank. I, I mean, <laughs> I, d- I have no idea what on earth went in that. <laughs> oh, God. You said it was like Dean Martin at the Friars Club. Yeah, I, re- I really enjoyed, I, I really enjoyed making fun of Matt Fayo and, and Journey for doing gigs with with Negronis in hand, because it did feel like you were closing off a gig in a club owned by someone who Martin Scorsese made a film about. <laughs> that, I tell you what, mate, those two nights with Kamal and yourself, they're, they're in the absolute all-time greatest ABC nights ever. And I got to tell the manager the other night the Negroni story, and that is the most I've ever seen her laugh. Like, tears... <laughs> Tears down her cheeks. It was perfect. <laughs> now, now, Nish, if you were, so we will move on to the the pure business. If you were to, you're curating this dream gig. Yeah. Do you have, and I say this as someone who has too many. Do you have any pre-gig rituals? I think I, I'm never more hydrated than when I do stand up. Like I'm, I'm constantly drinking water. I, I think sort of gig to gig when I'm just like, you know, doing working in London or if I'm doing a kind of weekend of gigs, it doesn't really get into any kind of groove. But once I get into like a tour mode or Edinburgh mode, I get very fixed rituals. Um, You know, like with the tour, me and the support act and the tour manager will have a Nando's at the same time, pretty much every, every gig. Um, and if we're changing that ritual, it's largely because we found a restaurant that will give us food at 4 p.m. Because that's sort of part of the weird thing about touring is that, like, we go out for a lot of really nice lunches, and then occasionally we have some, like, late-night late, late night food. But very often, it's the dinner Dinner is the 5 p.m. Nando's. Um, and, and when I'm in Edinburgh, like, w- when you're doing Edinburgh and you're doing the same show every day in the same room, that's when I find a lot of the real superstitions take hold. Like, there was a point where I would listen to the same song uh, every day before walking and doing the show. I'd listen to the same four songs, um, like, every single day. And you get into a kind of rhythm and ritual with it, and, it, yeah, it gets, it gets really weird. Some, it's easier when you're doing things sporadically, but once you're in a rhythm with something, it's not even just superstition. It's also just about getting your brain started. Um, you know, there was like one Edinburgh where I ate uh, a banana and two oranges before every show. And after about seven days, you go, this is just part of how I get my brain in gear. And it's not, and, and sometimes people think that superstitions are like, Superstitions are very normal because once something becomes ritual, it starts to become how you prepare your mind for whatever the given activity is. And I think that sports people, from what I understand, are incredibly superstitious. And it isn't just that they all believe in witch doctors 
though some of them do, brackets, Novak, jo- Novak Djokovic, Novak Djokovic being, of course, the perfect <laughs> Freudian slip for me to have made. But yeah, apart from like Djokovic and his army of sort of weird midsummer cult shamans, he, uh, I think, I think ritual is really important because it's how you prepare your mind for doing whatever it is that you're what you're going to do. So I, I just think that we shouldn't necessarily be too contemptuous of superstition um, because it isn't simply, it isn't as simple as you're, you believe that some higher power is about to help you for whatever unfathomable reason, do 20 minutes of stand-up comedy well, as if the higher powers don't have a million better things to deal with. You believe that you're invoking some kind of ancient <laughs> god to help you, you know, get through some knob gags about the prime minister like the idea that 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 would be what the spirits have chosen to spend their time facilitating is mind bending but uh, we we could help to land this plane but no, Nish yeah. Kumar also needs to do yeah. well with this 20 Nish Kumar's really trying to make this routine work about a time he shat himself when he was 7 years old so i'm afraid the passengers of this flight are shit out of luck it's yeah. I mean, it's. I think superstition of ritual is really important. I uh, mainly now what I've got it down to is just like uh, I have a pint of water and then obsessively turn on and off the recording device on my phone because I also record everything, and so that that's part of the ritual now. Is like get the have your water, get the phone ready, uh, check get the watch ready, and then go on stage. Uh, Nish, by the way, you are singing to the choir because I'm the, I'm the equivalent. I am Paul Ince being left out of the tunnel, not quite yet putting his shirt on. I <laughs> there, there is an episode of comedians giving lectures that started slightly later than it should have done because the, the floor manager was looking for me and I, I hadn't finished writing out my goal setting manifest list for the record. <laughs> so you go hard, right? You go hard with the pre the, the superstitions. I do. I'm sort but I'm sort of trying to wean myself off. Right, right, right. Because I, I've been too extreme in the past. Yeah, right. There is I a think ha- I've, yeah, I think I found a good balance. And I think that that is key. I don't think you'll ever I don't mean you specifically, though I do mean you specifically as well. <laughs> but I don't think you'll ever completely uh rid yourself of them um but i think part of it is just indicating to your body that you're about to do the exactly. thing you do. uh who who would mc the gignish well i'm afraid it's you know it's quite difficult for me to comparing is a hard one right because we don't really have like when you think about the acts you'd want on your dream lineup you're basically talking about what's available to you is the entire recorded history of stand-up comedy mm-hmm. you know so you, you can reach back but comparing feels like a more sort of um ephemeral thing um because we don't we can't really keep the uh keep the records of who was a good compare i mean i would say and it is quite tricky because they're both friends of mine and they'll both make fun of me for saying them but i would say somewhere between daniel kitson and ed gamble those are the two those are the two strongest compares I've seen. Um, and I have been a compare. And I, uh, and I, and so, and you compare all the time, Gilly. You know how hard it is. And sometimes people are contemptuous of it um, as, a, as a skill. But man, it's hard work. When an audience member is contemptuous of it, it, 
I can think of a couple of times, um, that, you know, someone has said something after a show or whatever. I, I can still feel my heart break when I think yeah. about, you know. Yeah, it is, it is weird that people don't realise, because obviously the famous truism uh, is that every compare at some point has had an audience member say, you were really good, you should try comedy at some point. That's one of them. There was another one that was a, it was a rowdy gig and three guys would not stop talking. And they they came up to me at the break because they were they were cross that I'd asked them to stop talking. And one of them said, you're not even a comedian. Oh, wow. like that's like a dagger to the heart. You, so I've only ever seen you compare at ABC and uh, and at t and uh, and I've seen you do warm up at TV studios. So I've never really seen you have anything other than a great one. No, we'll have done some ninety nines together. Yeah, oh, yeah, I guess. I, but have you ever? Because I've had them where when you're the MC, you go out and it's difficult and the at the top, and that feeling of being stood at the side of the stage watching an act do well, which is obviously good because ultimately, as an MC. If the acts all have good gigs, you've done your job, really. That 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 is the thing. But I've I've been side of stage where the acts are having a good job, good gig, which is feels okay but hurts in its own way because you're like, wow, it's just me that you hate. <laughs> but then yeah. the the other version of it is when the acts are also having a difficult one, and you're at the side of stage going, yeah, that's my fault. That's absolutely my fault. But that the feeling of having to go back on because if you stink up a twenty minute set. You stink up a 20 minute set. You just, it, you know, it's just a, it's a dirty bomb and then flee. You're just, you're shitting in the sink and then doing a runner. Put your car on, off you yeah, go. Yeah, exactly. Whereas when, if you're having a tough one as compare, it's, you've shat in the sink and now for some reason you have to eat your dinner off it. Like, it's really like, it's a particular form of, of punishment. That, you're 100% right. That heart sinking, you get the act on, you're like, Oh, phew. And then you immediately go, I've got to go back home to my <laughs> oh, But that, that's never happened to you at ABC, right? No, uh, I, I hope not. I can think of some listeners right now going, oh, I can think of <laughs> But surely that's never, certainly I've never seen you have anything approaching that. No, God, I, sincer I sincerely hope not. I remember, I remember a Christmas gig in central London where you know it was, it was just like unplayable and each time yeah. you're going out you're like you're like visibly aging you know but anyway sorry i'm, I'm i've i've no but the, the but a christmas gig we should clarify for listeners a christmas gig is uh, like a gig that happens in international waters you know there's no laws oh. there's no it, it, and there's no judgment if you have a bad gig at a christmas gig you're not a comedian until you've eaten shit at a Christmas gig. And it's because Janice, who organised the Christmas gig at the company, thought that booking a comedy night would be a good idea for 60 people. Yeah. But it turns out that 57 of them just wanted to have a... And I yeah. get it, they just wanted to have a chat. And, yeah. you know, and anyway, sorry, I, what I've done is I've, I've inadvertently turned this to me and I apologise. Now, Gamble and Kitson, both God-tier compares, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um uh both brilliant compares just that thing of you know being able to pull something completely out of their ass in front of the audience uh is uh is pretty uh is pretty incredible i'll only say kitson of the two of them because i think it would annoy him more <laughs> <laughs>
if I referred to him as a compare, it would irritate him more. <laughs> and not and not as the National Theatre's Daniel Kirtson. Uh I think it would annoy him more if I said. But yeah, they're both just like they're both so so good. And also, um you know, there are horror stories about certain acts who I will not name, uh, who compared at various points and who were very good compares, but made it almost deliberately difficult for the other acts. It was certainly they were very good improvisers and they were very good at working an audience, but they had no interest in their role as making the gig easy for the acts. And so there are various acts who we can talk about when we're not recording, who are very famously, and this is a horrible phrase, absolute cunts. And uh, it's... It's so funny because I nearly nearly joined in and was going to go, gig stealers, and you... No, that was it. You went for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You a whole different direction. But the the best compares, um, uh, you know, of which I'd like to think you and I can be included, but certainly the best compares are people that have good gigs themselves and then also create an atmosphere whereby the acts can also have good gigs. That's it. You it's all about the it's all about the greater good. And yeah. uh, Ga- Gamble is another one just so funny and you know as with you when Gamble's on stage I know I'm just going to laugh hysterically for yeah. every moment he's up there. Yeah. It's um it's uh yeah, it's a really interesting and specific skill and it's to sort of curiously undervalued skill by everyone other than people that work in live comedy. One thing I did want to ask, something that the listener might not know, they might know, but you and Gamble, you're you're pals from back in the day. Yeah, I went to university with Ed. I've known Ed since I was uh, 20 years old. Uh, And I'm now, whatever it is, 32. I'm now 20. I'm now 18. (laughs) I, I shouldn't joke about it. I have the Benjamin Button disease. It's, uh, it's really awful. Sorry, Nish. I, I it's actually make, a really horrendous condition. I shouldn't make light. Um, um, did you inspire each other to get into comedy? Uh, Ed was already uh, in the student sketch comedy show at our university. And I think, and had already done stand-up uh, when I first met him. I I, I met him briefly because I, try, I also auditioned for the uh, sketch group and didn't get in. Um, and met him briefly at the auditions for that. And then, and I was sort of told by one of the guys, you didn't quite make the cut because we wanted to let people in that were finishing university. But he was basically like, you should audition next year because you'll definitely get in. And so I did. And that's where I sort of properly met Ed. And um, I, I, you know, he's just, uh, <laughs> it's just a very big part of my life. <laughs> you know, I, he, uh, we we lived together. I was best man at his wedding. Like we've sort of, um, uh, yeah. He's just one of those people that I just sort of, uh, 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 he's you know he's family at this point. But he was already doing comedy, and he had been to Edinburgh, and he knew a bit about stand up, and he was sort of, he he was generally a bit more savvy than the rest of us because I think he he thought about comedy as a career. Um, and then had actually thought because he, I think he saw. I, this may be wrong, but I think he saw Steve Coogan doing the Man Who Thinks He's It tour, and I think he said after that he was like, "I think I'm going to be a comedian," 
and and I saw goodness gracious me live in a maybe a similar time and thought I'm going to be a comedian, but I then just did no follow up work to it. Um, whereas definitely by the time I met Ed, he'd worked out that there was a circuit of stand up gigs that you could do, and people wrote shows and took them to Edinburgh, and so he was slightly ahead of us in terms of our understanding. Uh, by us, I mean the other members of the group, which includes. Uh, Tom Neenan, who then went on to be the head writer in the Mash. So I, I've really known those two for a long, long fucking time. Did, did you ever have uh, proper jobs before going full time with comedy? Uh, Ed did. I think Ed worked for about six months at, at some sort of like call centery job, and then he was done and out. I, I, I was an office temp for five years. Um, yeah, probably from certainly from. I kind of had a sort of temp job from about 2007 until about, hey, it was more than that, six years, 2007 till 2013. I had various office temp jobs. And for the last year, I was um, going part time. But it was all while I was trying to do stand up in the evenings. Did you have a moment where you're like, I can actually get, I can, because it's one thing to like say see a coogan or, or goodness gracious me and think i want to be a comedian but what was the moment where you thought oh my god this this is on i, I can do this i think i don't you know honestly i don't know if i thought that i could do it that early on but i definitely remember doing stand-up and thinking i think this is what my brain was built for in some way um and i think this brings together all of my interests like i'm able to i like getting up and like performing in front of people i like making people laugh but i also like the freedom to be able to talk about whatever i want in whatever manner i choose so there was definitely that where i thought this is certainly what i should be chasing i i think in terms of like actually you know like you know it was i i must have had a pretty ironclad sense of myself to get through you know, at least like four years of absolutely no professional success. <laughs> so I must have that I think, it, but it would there would always just be little things that happened over the course of the year that would make me think, oh, well, I'm still on the right track for something. Um, the thing with you, know, you, so the thing with you, Nish, as well is, there are so many strings to the bow. So with your, you know, some of my favourite bits of yours, I mean, there's so many, but like, Drummer from Coldplay is so, sure. that is what a routine that is. Monopoly, James Bond. These are all not. These are all, all right. Monopoly, I suppose, is a bit political, but these are these are ostensibly non-political. And I mean, this is a compliment. These are broad, mainstream routines. It's not necessary. It's not. It's not just yeah. Um, political. You, you, my friend, are. You are. If you ever need a pep, if you ever feeling low, give me a fucking call. <laughs> but you are. I think you're such a phenomenal comedian who covers so many different things. I was thinking of drummer from Coldplay just, just the other day and what a remarkable bit that is. Yeah. It's, um, it's a funny thing. Cause it sort of, it does, it, it does seem to sort of keep popping up. Like it's funny how that routine it, and also cause it, I, I did it on live at the Apollo and it got filmed that it's on the internet. Uh, you know, it's funny. You sort of see that sort of, um, that like, that routine keeps keeps on cropping up um and um 
yeah, I, I think in about, I think if I'm being honest, there's bits of my stand-up that I'm, most of it I am not proud of. But, but from pre-2016. And there's like, there's apart from the odd routine that I think worked, there's, there were routines that worked well. But I think that that 2016, which is available as an album, now I, I put out two, and from then on, and particularly that, that live at the Apollo set that is available in its entirety, which is like on YouTube, which is the sort of half of it is the drummer from Coldplay. And then the other half is a routine about gentrification that ends up sort of referencing that sort of ends up referencing because it was a routine that I'd written about gentrification. And then we were doing it in the Hammersmith Apollo, which is so near the Grenfell tower. And so it felt, weird to talk about housing and um without referencing it and so the bbc were really helpful in terms of like clearing up the language that i was able to use but i think that the subject matter of all of that stuff i thought i'm definitely getting somewhere that i want to be going um around that around that sort of time like i've cracked something that's allowing me to talk about the drummer from coldplay and more serious things about housing and you know it's yeah i i i think at that stage i started to feel like i was able to get somewhere with it um from sort of 2016 onwards uh right superb get kit kits on gamble beat program kits who would open the gig well i was giving some thought as to who how i want this comedy like this night to play out in terms of who would open but I think probably I'm just sort of overthinking it and I should just bang out three uh, acts that I think have I, I've had a significant relationship with um, as a fan of their work so I'm gonna go open with Maria Bamford uh, because I believe when I saw Maria Bamford um, at the Montreal Comedy Festival uh, in 2016, I believe it's the best stand-up comedy I've ever seen in person. Incredible. Um, I thought that it was, um, yeah, I thought that it was, it was extraordinary. And I sort of, and I realised it as I was watching it. The, the material that I saw her do is all in an album called 20% or the Netflix special Old Baby. Uh, which is the one that starts with her performing into a mirror and then the audience gets uh, bigger and bigger and bigger until she's performing it in a full theatre. Um, and the material in that show, which again sort of takes in stuff about her having a complete mental breakdown um, and, uh, you know, like it, it takes in kind of ideas around suicide and mental illness and, you know, why the the feeling of not necessarily wanting to perform but feeling compelled to it, it's just it's just all really brilliant and i think that she is um yeah i think that she's i i i, I just think that that show that specifically that show I, I had a sense that i was watching someone do stand up as well as it was possible for it to be done have you met Bamford and been able yeah. to? Have you have you been able to convey this? Yeah, yeah, I have. I mean, I tried to play it a bit cool, but I met her actually that year. I was doing 
uh, Just for Laughs in Montreal is a sort of big North American comedy festival. And there's obviously lots of American Canadian comedians and there's people doing solo shows. And there's also lots of people doing mixed bill shows, doing short spots. And then they have these kind of big centerpiece galas with a kind of celebrity host. And and in 2016, I did one that was David Cross's gala. Um, and Maria Bamford and Louis Anderson were on. And oh, my then, God. Um, and then it, it there was a sort of there, there was a really interesting like it, it was just a really interesting mixture because it was it was me. Uh, Nick Thune and Mark Forward. Nick Thune's a great American comedian. Mark Forward is a great Canadian comedian. And the sort of three of us were like standing there going, what the fuck are we doing on this bill? Like, (laughs) (laughs) how did this, how the the hell is, that was one of those weird things where you're like, it feels like this may have been a clerical error. Um, But I I did get to meet her and I've met her a couple of times subsequently. And she's always uh, she's always very nice, and I'm always um, sort of slightly uh, slightly in awe of her. But yeah, she's always been brilliant. She's always very good. But that's the specific experience of watching her that night. I don't know what it was. Whatever it was, the kind of the the material is great, and it's available for everybody to watch. Just whatever it was, the sort of alchemy of it, um, it made me think, yeah, this is like this is a, this is as good as you can possibly do this job when those moments happen when you see that comedian and alchemy is the perfect word you know the scene in west side story when tony and maria look at each other and it's almost like the rest of the world doesn't exist and it's just yeah, you yeah, watching yeah. those moments are, are so fleeting but as a comedy fan and and as a comedian they're they're special moments aren't they? that's when yeah. your brain goes right mate this is happening you need to Remember where you were. Be mindful in the moment, and all of that. That they they are. I think I think comedy fans listening to this will know what we're talking about. They're the special moments that you that you almost live for. There are times that I've watched shows, and this was definitely one of them. And the, and I'm talking about full kind of hour long shows. There are times where you're watching a comedian, and you just think, "I Christ, I don't want this to end." Yeah, like I'm actually having such a like. There's something so perfect about what I'm watching that I actually don't. Um, I don't want this to end. And that I, I had that very clear sensation. And that night I texted my partner uh, and said, I just saw Murray Bamford. I think it was the one, of, I think it was the best comedy I've ever seen. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it's, it was an extraordinary show. I would say incredible, but the pressure uh, on the rest of the gig yeah. is. <laughs> We, we've moved on to the middle section. Who would you have middling the gig? So middling the gig, uh, I, I mean, there's a couple of people that I thought, I thought this would be a sort of interesting slot to pick somebody. Um, and I I sort of got it down to two people who, and I'll mention both of them and then pick one. I thought that, um, I, I sort of think that like, in, in once you, when you watch stand up a lot and then you start doing stand up, there's like a point you hit where, you um you think that you're likely to stop being influenced by people um and then you sort of come to your senses and realize that you probably never stop being influenced by people which is obviously a polite way of saying won't rip them off (laughs) um but i think the person that i was almost going to go for but i haven't is roy wood jr because i saw roy wood i saw roy wood jr in 
Montreal in 2016, probably on the same trip that I saw Maria Bamford. Amazing. And um, I just saw him do uh, a like short set and um, he did a routine about Titanic, which I would urge anyone who likes comedy to seek out. It's available on his album Father Figure and you can get it wherever you get music. Like it's on Spotify, Apple Music, on YouTube. It's all of those things. It's a routine about Titanic by Roy Wood. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it's genuinely one of my favorite, all time favorite pieces of stand up. Um, and he has uh, a, a load of albums that are available. He's he's had a real like spike in profile because he literally just did the White House Correspondence Dinner. Um, but definitely someone worth checking out. And all of his output is available as comedy albums. Um, but the person I'm going to go for is actually, again, a friend of mine, but I don't think she knows how to get podcasts, so it's fine for me to mention her on it. Uh, but um, I'll go for Bridget Christie. Because oh! I think watching Bridget Christie, and it's a similar thing with Roy Wood Jr., there are lots of comedians that talk about politics, and they're also quite like serious people. But I am not a serious person. I'm just interested in serious things. I'm a person obsessed by serious concerns trapped in the body of a kind of trivial goofball. And I don't think I really understood how to bring those two elements together until I saw Bridget do a big for her, which is a show about feminism and women's rights and really important stuff. And then the show after that, um, which basically is sort of all of those two shows I think are compressed together and are available in a Netflix special called a show for her. But those two shows showed me that you can talk about really serious subjects whilst yourself being a goofball. Cause Bridget Christie is one of comedy's great buffoons, like in terms of her onstage mannerisms. Um, but, and she applies that to the most serious subjects. And it actually, I think one of the things that I thought was initially I, I sort of thought that you had to be very affable on stage and you had to talk about things people were interested in. Then I thought, oh no, if you're going to talk about serious things, you should be like Bill Hicks and be serious. And <laughs> and then I, I, when I watched Bridget Christie, I thought, oh no, you have to be true to whatever version of yourself is most comfortable engaging with people. Like it's always a bugbear of mine where comedians are like, you have to be, you have to go up there and tell the truth, man. And you're like, no, that's not, that's the fundamental misunderstanding of everything. You have to go out there and tell jokes. You, you keep your truth to yourself. But what you have to do is find a way of, like the audience can sniff out dishonesty. And I oh. don't mean dishonesty, literally. I mean, they can sniff out if somebody is doing something that they think they should be doing rather than something they want to be doing. And the maybe a better way of thinking about it is the audience can sniff out discomfort. They can sniff out a performer's discomfort. And the examples I always give are, I really, Richard Lewis once said in an interview, Richard Lewis is a great American stand-up comedian and is mainly famous for irritating Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> but Richard Lewis once said that he has tried to narrow the gap between his onstage persona and his offstage persona to such an extent that he's just going, there's no difference between him offstage and him on stage. That's his version of being comfortable on stage. Milton Jones's version of being comfortable on stage is putting on the shirts and popping his hair up. That is how Milton is most comfortable in front of an audience. And that's what you have to find as a comedian is find 
what you are most comfortable doing. And for some people, it'll be one-liners. For some people, it will be characters. For some people, it will be, uh, you know, political stand-up pretty much delivered as themselves as they are off stage. Um, and I think I learned a lot of that through watching Bridget. And then I'm thinking, I'm also thinking about a specific gig. I don't know if you remember this, a specific gig where I saw Bridget at Always Be Comedy. She and I previewed our 2016 shows uh, together back to back that night. And it was just after Bridget had decided to rip up her entire- Yes. Her entire show. She was gonna do a show about uh, sort of death and flowers. And she ripped up the entire show and uh, changed the title to Because You Demanded It and did an hour on Brexit. And it was it was amazing. It was incredible seeing somebody. And we were sort of all there watching it happen on stage. Um, and uh, it didn't, the, by then, by the time she got to Edinburgh, she'd managed to like find an ending. I think she was still trying to find an ending in the preview, but it was, it was scrappy, but it was also thrilling sort of watching that all come together. Um, but yes. So, Nish, can I just say that answer, you have just blown my mind. And the, uh, the only other person I know nerdy enough who has this same CD series is Gary Delaney. And it's right, a, yeah. there's a CD series called On Comedy. And a guy interviews like Johnny Carson, Jerry Seinfeld. And I've got these CDs. That answer there, my friend, has blown the, the On Comedy series out of the water. <laughs> Could not agree more. Um, Bridget, you absolutely nailed it. Bridget Christie is a buffoon while also being an absolute icon of stand-up comedy. You know, she's, she's also the smartest person in the room. She's exactly. I think I thought that on, you either had to be the smartest person in the room or the dumbest person in the room, and that was how you did comedy. And Bridget Christie is simultaneously the smartest and dumbest person in any given room. Smartest person in the room while possibly dressed as an ant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. But funnily enough with that stuff, I, I think I did, because I, I always loved that, but I always loved when she was dressed as an ant and doing like comedy about being an ant comedian. <laughs> and people always ask me, I didn't think ants could be funny, you know, but like, <laughs> and, I, and I, but I think I always filed that as something not near what I was trying to do, literally because she was wearing a fucking ant costume. But when she, did stopped wearing the costumes and stuff i was like oh this is what i this is something i am aspiring to do and i think it's one of those things where you sort of um you sort of have to allow yourself to continue to be influenced by you know in some cases your peers um yes and yeah and so yeah i would say yeah i would say for this i've i've tried to work out sort of arbitrary criteria with compares i've tried to go with comp people that i would like to be like people that I think can do it in a very specific way and can sort of do it any way they want to do it. And I've included you, I've excluded present company from that as well, Gilly. I hope you do. I've, I, I, I excluded you and I on technicalities from all of these things, because it feels weird if we picked ourselves, but it, I tried to pick compares who you'd want to be compared by. Then the opening act, I thought I got to pick Maria Bamford because that's the best individual stand-up show I've ever seen. Then for this middle slot, I was thinking, right, who is somebody that made me continue to kind of love stand-up comedy and also maybe had quite a direct influence on my work. And definitely Roy Virginia, Bridget Christie are two absolute. And also I thought it was nice on this podcast to talk about a specific gig at ABC that sticks out in my mind. And watching Bridget rip up that show and build something new in front of us was like, was pretty thrilling. 
Um, and also, she fixed my show that night as well. <laughs> oh my god, she's such a she's such a mensch. Yeah. Um, and then also, when you say that about people who who say things like "you gotta go up there and speak the truth," you reminded me of you know when Krusty the Clown tries to be like George Carlin. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. Tying the hair back in a ponytail. And all yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, but on. Also, I, I, I know I mustn't turn this into an absolute lovey fest, but it, you know, is there a more uh, beloved comedian than Bridget, where when she no. walks, when she yeah. walks into a room, you feel instantly seventy yeah. percent better than you have done. Yeah, there's certainly no one better, more beloved uh, in comedy by people who work in comedy. She, uh, you know, everyone loves her. She she was at ABC the other day, and she was downstairs, and I walked over to her, and I, I, you know, we all love Bridget a great deal. And as, about, as I got about five yards away, she went, there's something wrong. Tell me what it is. Yeah. And it was, it was a, it was a, it was a minor non-comedy related thing. And I went, how the hell did you know that? And she, and she was, she was absolutely correct. Um, but it, 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 Nish, it's a shame that she'll never listen to this because she won't know what. <laughs> That's why I say it. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll have to, I'll have to, um, I'll have to write down, I'll have to transcribe. <laughs> And then read it out when I see her next. Um, right, superb, a, a glorious pick. Uh, who, who would close this this juggernaut? Well, then in in this instance, it's like if you're picking a closer, you've got to pick like absolute bucket list. And obviously, uh, this is the most boring route one thing I could have said, but of course, everybody would love to see Richard Pryor do stand up. Like it, he's one of the people that made me want to be a comedian um and i i would have thought everybody would i, I would have thought that everybody would i i would have thought that it would everybody would either say um prior or carlin uh or maybe billy connolly you know it's it, simply because it's unlikely that i think billy connolly would ever be able to do a stand-up show again but you know with prior it is just like you know, I remember somebody saying, oh, you uh, oh, you like comedy, you should watch this and giving me a DVD of live in concert. And um, and then sort of afterwards watching it and going, oh, I, I mean, I don't think I knew that it was possible to be that funny. Um, and then I spent uh, when I was at university, I. I don't know why they decided to do this, but they set up an intranet like a, like within there was a we all had access to the Internet in our rooms. And then they had an intranet that was just file sharing exclusively for the students in your like accommodation. Now, I think they thought, well, obviously they will use this to share essays and work material. But it turned into the greatest repository of all <laughs> popular culture I've ever come across in my entire life. Literally any film you could find. I won't go into the pornography stash because it was <laughs> truly legion, but and this was in the like pre-porn streaming as well, so it was real like it was a real boon uh, to. Uh... But then, yeah, one of the things that I found was the um, I can't remember what it's called. There was a point where they released every single one of his albums on CD, and they, someone had ripped the CDs and put all of the MP3s up. And so I just, but it wasn't, you know, it was in the sort of unlabeled era. And I slowly pieced together his, a chronology of his career from these kind of Richard Pryor album dot MP3 <laughs> files or MP4 files or whatever it was. Um, and so, and, and then I was able to work through 
the entire span. And so it starts from the album Richard Pryor, which is cat has caught him just after he's like freaked out in Vegas and decided he doesn't want to be a Cosby clone. Yeah. And then when when Cosby meant something very different. Um and then and then you 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 can trace the sort of evolution of his genius. And for someone like me who was like a you know a deep comedy geek, it was the best comedy course I could ever have taken. Uh, now, to any, anyone listening who's not fully au fait with Pryor, I mean, you can't really understate what, what he did for, for stand-up in terms of moving it forwards. Can, yeah. Can you, can you just say a bit about that? Because, I mean, he, he's, um, his influence is profound, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, as with all of these things, it sort of doesn't, um, it doesn't work in clear, as clear delineation as we would like, you know, because some of the things that he was he helped kind of revolutionize you know there's bits of lenny bruce had started mm. uh it, you know had started to move some of that along and certainly george carlin was also fighting the same fight of turning stand-up comedy from people telling sort of disconnected one-liners into a more like into a sort of longer form stories um and ta- being willing to tackle some very contentious topics like race and sex and class and drug use and alcoholism and you know Le- lenny bruce was definitely doing a lot of that um and and here we kind of have this like moment where alternative comedy happens in the early 80s that does something profound to british stand-up comedy but you could equally see the seeds of that in billy Connolly and dave allen uh, in the 70s um, yeah. and so there are there are very rarely clear lines drawn but what richard Pryor definitely did was um help make stand-up comedy into a f- platform whereby you could essentially discuss anything uh, it was the subject matter was so extraordinary and his approach was so frank and also he kind of he was a sort of um he had this work he evolved the conversation about race and racism you know he he made the, the subject of race and racism into comedy but he gave the license to the oppressed group there's definitely been a lot of comedy about race and racism for years and years and years but very often it was you know it was the powerful people laughing at the people that they were oppressing yeah but prior was a big part and again someone like dick gregory also deserves a huge amount of credit for doing that in america and dick Bre- dick gregory went on to kind of blur the line between comedian and activist um also just te- on a technical level prior is such an interesting comedian because he is ostensibly a, what we think of as inverted commas straight stand-up like He's just a person presenting his personality or a version of his personality that he's contrived for an audience and telling stories from his life. But he's also kind of a character comedian. That's the one thing that him and Maria Bamford really have in common is they are stand-ups who have the ability to turn themselves into absolutely anyone. Um, And like, if you go and listen to something like The Wino and the Junkie, which is a dialogue between a wino and a junkie, um that's from one of the that's from that n-words crazy the prior album but he's also there's a video of him performing it on some sort of show from the states in the early 70s and that is it's all prior a character driven prior at his best 
absolutely outstanding. And then, and then also the, you know, the some of the broad stuff. I mean, you can't, you cannot go to a zoo without to yourself doing the lion routine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, like the whole thing, and also, I, I know that his uh, cinematic output is. Um, is at best mixed but you know there's a few beloved things in there i i suspect most people uh, our age that are fans of richard Pryor first came across him in see no evil hear no evil you know like this there, there's also like a lot of stuff that he did that maybe isn't necessarily critically beloved but definitely people like but yeah i mean just in terms of stand-up if you could sort of have the opportunity to see someone do stand-up you'd probably want to see you'd probably want to see Pryor. um and yeah, and it was, it, it, he's just the best man. Like he sort of, um, I can't remember. I was having a, it, it, like, I can't remember who I was talking to somebody about. I think I was talking to Ahir Shah about favorite comedians. And he was talking about somebody doing comedy as well as it was possible to do comedy. And I said, well, what about Pryor? And he said, oh, he's so good. There's no point in even including him in the conversation. <laughs> Super. Yeah. There are certain people that yeah. um, that that belong in that category, um, and yeah, like I, I just sort of thought, man, you'd like to see him. You'd like to see him live. Has there been an incident uh, at a gig that you that you would love to happen again? Like, do you know what? I really can't think of one off the top of my head. I will say two things that have happened very recently to me that were very funny was I was um, I was on stage at the Clapham Grand doing a gig for uh, the promoters Burke's Nest, who are great promoters and friends of mine. And someone in the audience shouted something. This gig was going really well. And then someone shouted something and you're like, OK, what's happened here? And I said to them, um, what's going on? And this incredibly drunk woman said, the fog machine is too foggy. <laughs> and I mean, it was also like occasionally, like you, you, you know this, you're from, you, you're, from, you're from South London, you know, this, you know the area well. Occasionally, even in gentrified Clapham, there'll be some real South London that comes through. And I just heard this voice go, oh, fuck off. Like just really loudly. And, um, and I said, well, look, the thing is, and, and this, the drunk person continued to say, I'm not having a go, you know, can you just, does the, can you turn the fog down? And I was sort of saying, do you think I'm in control of the fog? You've not understood what the remit of my job here is. Do you honestly think that I'm on stage managing the fog situation? And, and the audience reacted very favorably to that. In, and then there was like a, a momentary lull and then the audience lost their minds. And the reason they'd lost their minds, they were one step ahead of me. I didn't know what was happening. The tech who was in control of the fog machine had turned it from, honestly, what I cannot stress is it was a mild mist at best. But then he cranked what like Iron Maiden or whatever <laughs> setting it was and just flooded the room with smoke. And it was so funny it was just an absolutely perfect moment superb um, and the other one was i was comparing but, but also that, that person imagine like going to see adele oh adele just sort those fireworks yeah out, can mate. you sort those fireworks out mate yeah but it was so funny because the he just whacked it up and the clapham grand is like it's a very beautiful theater but it's obviously like it like a lot of the best theaters it's quite a high and narrow space like as in the back of the room is not very far away from you the audience is stacked up in stalls at a circle. So, we, I mean, 
<laughs> within about 30 seconds, the whole room was just filled with smoke. <laughs> Superb. Uh, it was a superb moment. And the other one, I was uh, comparing the showcase at the McCunnleth Comedy Festival, which is a very brilliant comedy festival run by my uh, dear friends uh, at Little Wonder. And I have been going there for so many years. And one of the things I enjoy is slagging off Wales to the Welsh. I enjoy that. It gives me great satisfaction. It, it's that thing where people say, think that people are very sensitive and you're like, no, if you go into it right, you could, there's nothing, because if you can mock people affectionately, but it displays some knowledge, people don't mind it and people will right. go with it. And I was on stage basically, I, someone had said something about Wales and I said, at the end of the day, let's not be around the bush. It's not a real country. And the Welsh tech killed the lights on me. <laughs> perfect which was just perfect <laughs> and then we, we all had it was so much fun everybody was laughing and i i really enjoyed it and then the second section when i came out to compare i had like i had somehow got into a conversation with somebody that led me to once again say as i've said before wales is not a real country and then i waited for the lights to go off and they didn't go off and then i said i thought he turned the lights off and he turned my mic off and it was it was perfection. Chef's kiss. It was absolute perfection. So I guess what I'm saying is, if you come and see me, there is a chance of people doing the tech off funnier than I am. I know that Tim Lewis right now is thinking, I'm going to up my fucking yeah. game. <laughs> Tim's going to pelt me with tomatoes as soon as I walk on. Let me see if I can get that in a fucking podcast. <laughs> right then, has there been an incident that must not happen at this gig that's happened? an incident that must not happen again to me I, yes. i'm going to oh. go with bread roll gate <laughs> sure that's, that's the one thing that we must have no repeat of um i think in terms of yeah i mean it is funny now because people whenever people ask me uh if <laughs> what what's the worst thing that's happened to a gig i'm like do me a favor pop google open Whack Nish Kumar in and bread roll. And you can just see, it's very helpful because you're like, the entire story is very available. And uh, I have filmed me doing 80 minutes of stand-up comedy about it that is going to be available later on in the year. But, um, I so I guess bread roll? I mean, I think in the course of that show, having to do that show, the course of writing that show, I was trying to set it in context. So I listed some of the worst things that have ever happened to me at a gig. I mean, there is there's some that are just extraordinary. Like I was opening a gig probably in 2010 and uh, Simon Bird, Joe Thomas and Johnny Sweet were in a sketch group called The House of Windsor. And this was probably about six months after Simon and Joe had started being in the Inbetweeners. And it was a show everybody loved. And literally I walked out and a man from the back just shouted, when are the famous people on? <laughs> when are the famous people on? And then later he actually found me and said, hey man, it, it, was, it was at a Cambridge ball. I don't know if you've been to a Cambridge ball, but nothing, having to do a job at a Cambridge ball, nothing will make you want to begin class war more quickly <laughs> than going to a Cambridge ball. And it, and 
It's literally, at Cambridge was the first place I ever had Noki. That's how fancy they are. And this guy <laughs> shouted, when are the famous people on? And later he found me and he was like, hey man, sorry, I'm actually the guy that shouted out about when the famous people were on. And I was like, well, don't introduce yourself to me. <laughs> and he he then said, um, yeah, it's just uh, the thing is, I really love the in-betweeners. Like that explained everything. <laughs> Oh, case closed. Sorry, oh, mate. Oh, well, of course, if you love the in-betweeners. That shouted louder. Yeah, 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 yeah. Listen, when they came on, you should have popped your trousers and pants off and had a big wank. And you could have just <laughs> defended yourself to the police by saying, I just love the in-betweeners. I'm just a fan. Just a big uh, fan. Well, I mean, what, what I would say about Bread Rollgate, and I'm saying this as your friend who is, I've said before, uh, I, I'm, I'm a bit like the mouse on uh, the mouse on Dumbo. I always want people. I always want people to feel great and at their best. Yeah. So what? What I would say about Bread Rollgate to almost tie a bow in it all, that has been responsible for one of the best stand-up shows I've ever seen in my life. So if you, <laughs> so if you can put if you can put positive spin on it, that is that is a big positive niche. Now I'm, I'm well aware that you you went through the the ringer and then some off the back of that. But my God, the light at the end of the tunnel, you're, you're at the other side of the tunnel. The tunnel is now in the distance. And I mean, it all, it all worked out great in the end. One of the first times I did that show was uh, at ABC. Like it was like, it was, we hadn't really been back for a very long time. It must've been, I wanna say maybe the early August, 2021. It was, it was, it was sort of, um, yeah, it was like an early gig back, but yeah, it was that was sort of where I started putting that show together. When is there any news on when that might be out? The special? Yeah, I can, I can. Uh, let me just make sure and tell you. But I can, I'll text you if you have to take this out, if that's fine. Um, Tim, so I think, strap in for this is a podcast exclusive. Yeah, it's going to be on. It's going to be on Sky. Sky, uh, Sky, going to show it on Sky Comedy and then on demand from the first first of August. So I think that that's, yeah, I think it's going to be uh, on Sky Comedy and then available on Now TV and Sky On Demand from August 1st. Nish, that is absolutely huge. You must be cock-a-hoop. Yes, I'm very pleased, largely because I <laughs> paid to film it myself on the hope, <laughs> on spec. Uh, so, yeah, I, it's, um, I'm relieved. My accountant is also relieved. Uh, what I would say to the to any listener who's not yet seen that show, dear Lordy, if you have a Sky subscription, you're in for a treat. If you don't, go around to a mate's house and watch it because that show is. Uh, I don't say this lightly because I Tim and I have seen a lot of stand up. That is hands down one of the best shows I would probably ever see in my life. It's extraordinary. And then you did it just before you did the recording. You yeah. ran through it again. At Always be comedy, and. Fucking hellfire! Just perfection. It was co comedy nirvana that night. It was, uh, yeah. I've uh, I did it quite a few times at ABC, which is um, which was great. It was, uh, but yeah, definitely. Um, it was nice to do. It was nice to do the first one back. Uh, uh, always be. Oh mate, God, God bless you. Now the very last thing. How do you how do you unwind? Is there a way of? Is it? I'll tell you what. Maisie Adam revealed that she reads after a gig, and I've. I've emulated that because it, it just calms everything down. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, in the immediate aftermath of a gig, I tend to sort of come home and watch some sitcom that I've seen before. Yes. I'm a big fan of re-watching 
television sitcoms that I've seen before. That's mainly how I sort of unwind after a gig. Ivo Graham and I used to watch Peep Show separately, and and I would message him the one that I was watching. You know, that's that's a that's a perfect example of a show that I would watch. I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but I warmed up a show that Robert Webb was on. Yeah, and I said, I know, you, I know, it's a bit, I know, it's such a such a sad thing to do, but I, I I'm glad I did it. I said, there was a pause, and I said to Robert off mic, I said, can I just say that I still watch Peep Show to this day, and yeah. I think it's, I think it's extraordinary. It's one of the best. Yeah. It's one of the best comedies of all time. And Robert Webb said, what? he said, him and his wife to this day will still go, should we put Peep Show on? <laughs> and he, I, I love that he was, he, he was very matter of fact. He, he, he still is like, yep, still holds up. It's still great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I love that he's a fan of the show. Yeah. It's, um, it's a great show. It's a really great show. And it's, um, it is yeah it's it's held up very well and i uh, i'm sort of be interested to see whether succession I, I people love succession so much that i can't imagine they aren't looking into the stuff jesse armstrong did previously um including the stuff that he did with sam bain and going going back to things like peep show um so i hope that there's more people that come to it but for, nobody at our age who likes comedy needs to be told to go to peep show oh do you know what i mean God. like old sitcoms that's that's a big thing for me is old sitcoms uh Nish, on behalf of tim and myself thank you for being our friend but also thank you for being a, a true hero of comedy and we uh i think you know because we tell you a lot <laughs> but i hope you know the pedestal that we that we both put you on so thanks for everything Nish. hey thanks for uh giving me 50 gigs a year <laughs> mate let's make it 100 uh thank you so much dude my pleasure i love always be comedy huge thanks to nish kumar and once again i don't say this lightly big thanks to tim lewis for uh for tim you i, I felt you did god's work there oh um that's very kind of you i thought well, well, all in a day's work. What am I on about? Uh, <laughs> thank you, James. The fact that it was it wasn't in all in a day's work, and it was actually all in multiple yeah, days' work. Literally <laughs> so true. Yeah. Chris, no Chris Nolan himself would have uh, admired the edit job. So, uh, yeah, well, well done, dude. Uh, now, Nish Kumar, yeah, Pod Save the UK. It is it is part of the Pod Save America family, if you like. Uh, do check that out, especially if you love. Um, if you love, if you, if you love, like I do, getting angry about the news, yeah. but also, uh, finding catharsis through laughter, then I, I would say that, um, I'd say that is the, that is the dream podcast. And as Nish exclusively revealed, we bloody, we bloody love a, a ruddy scoop. Uh, his special is on Sky, on Sky Comedy from the 1st of August. Uh, I would say kudos to Sky. Sky, you know what? Sky quietly, well, not quietly, noisily, uh, have been real champions of comedy because they also had Rob Beckett and Catherine Ryan's specials on there. So that's that's a, that's a great thing. Uh, so yeah, check that out. You, oh, you're in for a treat. It's such a it's a it's a wonderful show. Uh, so this August, have a barbecue. Then <laughs> <laughs> as it gets a bit cooler, come inside and watch. What am I doing? I've gone insane. Come inside and watch, and watch Nishi's special. Um, yeah, you, you, you'll enjoy it. Uh, join us next week. We have another absolute banger. Huge thanks to Nish. Huge thanks to Tim. Huge thanks to you all. 
as we say every week, please rate, review, subscribe, uh, and then any correspondence, the team at alwaysbecomedy.com. Tim, thank you as always. Uh, See you all soon. God bless you all. Bye-bye-bye-bye. Bye-bye.